Mormon Stories podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. So so how did you go from, um, you know, from disaffiliating with the LDS church and, and identifying as an atheist agnostic, you know, to sort of not wanting anything to do with Mormonism per se, to then rediscovering a love for Mormon history. I can get all that. Yeah. Now, now what I want to understand is how you go from that to wanting to actually be baptized a member of the community of Christ and to be an active participant in it. Because I know a lot of people who follow those steps out of the church, but, uh, but, you know, I think it's more rare for people for ex Mormons to find their way back into a church and, and even more significantly into a restoration branch church. Right. That's, that's affiliated with Joseph Smith in any way. How'd that happen? Yeah. Well, I, I'll say that for one of the, one of the things that um, I think that one of the reasons why atheism or agnosticism ends up being such a common um, end state for people who leave the LDS church are that people have the idea of uh, the idea of God, uh, the idea of a kind of a God as a um, literal heavenly father as a uh, being with a body, a finite being with a body who is all powerful, but who um, performs different miracles, this kind of thing, these kinds of, this kind of um, uh, very physical and, and um, you know, direct connect, connected to a, um, a luminous being kind of concept of God. Uh, in Mormonism, and then they and and a kind of a very fundamentalistic, not fundamentalist Mormonism, but fundamentalist in a, in a religious sense in general, and literalistic view of Scripture ideas that um, that the Bible is more or less a history book, uh, and, and that things that are told in in the in the narrative stories, the sacred stories there are or are in Scripture are actually historical and not simply symbolic, and so I think that. Um, uh, by when you have that vision of theology, if you have that vision of God and Scripture, it's hard not to simply reject it all altogether. But um, that is certainly. But I would say that ultimately, that is not the uh, only view of Scripture, and, and it is not the only view of uh, what God is. And in fact, it's a. It's not also the main traditional view of what God is. Uh, but rather, it's a recent and modern kind of reaction to um, uh, the challenges that theism has had since the Enlightenment. But it is it is a very Joseph Smith consistent view to view everything as literal, to view God as some type of anthropomorphic being. I mean, those those sure. are probably some of the most defining traits of Joseph Smith, right? So, well, especially his late theology. Right, so Joseph Smith is a moving target too. His thoughts are evolving. Um, what his original conceptions of God, you know, that are that are, are composed into the Book of Mormon, um, those are very different from the, from King Follett doctrine um, 
uh, King Follett sermon uh, progression theology that ends up being at the end in Nauvoo. Okay, so but I agree. Go ahead. But so before, yeah, and and so before we dig into that, though, you're just saying that what you've come to realize is that uh, religiosity does not necessarily need to denote a reliance on the literality or the anthropomorphism of a deity or, you know, literal interpretations of scripture. Right. And so what I would even say is what does, um, in our own restoration experience, what does Joseph Smith, the God, so the Joseph Smith who is in praise to the man, the exalted Joseph Smith that occurs after the, after the martyrdom, what does Joseph Smith, the God, tell us about Jesus, the man? In other words, we need to. Uh, we actually have in the Restoration tradition a window on uh, on how uh, how ideas like that uh, evolve, and that we can use those to actually um, unpack what happened in early Christianity. Uh, and and I would I would in, 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 and and that can also inform us to have a, a, a more realistic. Uh, assessment of that of the Jesus of history as opposed to the Jesus of scripture or the Jesus of theology. Okay, so that's a that's a beautiful high level sort of preview for what we're going to talk about maybe in parts two and three of this podcast because in part two we're going to dive into the history of the community of Christ or the reorganized church, and then in part three we're going to talk about where the community of Christ is now. But let's let how but but many people who end up leaving the LDS Church feel angry, they feel resentful, they feel um, disillusioned, they don't want to trust any authority, they certainly don't want anything to do with Joseph Smith because they view him as a charlatan and a fraud, and they just feel um, oftentimes just, I don't want anything to do with religion or faith at all. And so did you, you know, I can tell your emotional experiences were a little bit different in that I don't know to what extent you ever really felt angry or bitter or, or, you know, disillusioned by, by the church, but maybe you did, but regardless, the step from like being fascinated with Mormon history to the step of like joining a a religion, you know, that's those, something happened there. So what can you tell us about how that happened? Well, so unlike, most people, I think, who like you meet when you're meeting an ex-Mormon, you're meeting somebody who's a new ex-Mormon often, right? And right. so the, um, and I wouldn't say that I, you know, am immune from emotion and you know, right. I have no anger or those kind of things. But for me, that is consigned to, you know, when I was 18 to 21 years old or 22 years old, and then I have this whole long period of time where that was done. I was gone. That was nothing to do with me anymore. I didn't. It, and so when I came back at it. Um, I'm coming back at it, uh, even though I'm, you know, I'm something of an insider, but I'm an outsider insider. I'm a person who uh, no longer is uh, it, it, the whole thing. The, the whole thing isn't causing me, you know, me some kind of pain. I'm not like a, a person who is being kept in in the movement longer. Let's say that if you're a longtime ex-Mormon, one of the things that may make you still engage with the community is because you have a spouse who's active or something, and that can just cause continual friction and continual irritation and continually renewal of anger. Uh, and if you don't have something like that, you tend to just simply leave after, over after four or five years. You know, so you were upset, you are learning more and more, you're reading all of the ex-Mormon boards and you're finding out this and that 
more thing you're like oh my goodness that that also you know the you know this and that is also not the case according to or the you know the scholarship on against this truth claim uh at a certain point you're less the person is less angry and they're more than telling um they're telling those same kind of things to newly angry persons on the ex-Mormon boards, you know? And so they are, uh, so there's a kind of a transition where you are, you are more angry and less knowledgeable than you're more knowledgeable and less angry. And then finally you're bored, you know, <laughs> not angry. <laughs> and then you leave. And so, and so I was really kind of, um, excited when I first, um, you know, started doing all this, you know, we, uh, uh, Mormon history tourism and Mormon history study. Um, I was just excited also then that simultaneously when there was started to be social um, chat boards and that kind of thing. And so um, and so I was interested to start, you know, talking about all this stuff with other people. But I kind of quickly discovered that pattern uh, about that there were very few other ex-Mormons that were kind of we're kind of coming at this from where I was coming at it from. And so I had even, like early on, I had even um, um, bought like a website domain, culturalmormon.org. I thought, wouldn't this be great if we had a, a model where uh, this is my heritage, this is my uh, family identity going all the way back. There's no reason why I should cede um, the definition of what it is to be a Mormon to the, the president of the corporation or the first presidency in Salt Lake City or something like that. There's that They certainly are in charge of the largest institution within a Mormon culture, but there could, in the same way that we have cultural Catholics or uh, cultural Jews, there could also be cultural Mormons. But I ended up finding that very few um, people who identify as ex-Mormon want to even they don't like the idea of being called a cultural Mormon. They want to separate themselves from the Mormon identity, which they do view as being to so totally connected to the the um, to Thomas Monson. So for you, you love the culture enough that you didn't. You ultimately decided you wanted to embrace it, not reject it. Well, and I found that it was, it was ultimately that honestly, it's informing me. I like I explained to you in terms of yeah. my um, uh, what even the crazy thing I was doing in dating. I thought, you know, there are things um, deep inside of me here that are informed by the fact that I have this. Uh, what was still at the time maybe a semi-ethnicity, but you know, quickly waning as an ethnicity. Uh, and so, and I was excited, interested in that. And I wanted to explore that more with other people who shared that. So that's, that's definitely something I was interested in. So. And, but not just it was inside of you, but you must have valued it on some level. Some oh, of yeah. your, your Mormonness you, you valued. Absolutely. Okay. So again, now I can see you going, Hey, I like this culture. You know, we, we're not going to cede our culture to, you know, the church LDS church president. But right. then there's another step between <laughs> right. that and actually joining a church, getting baptized in a church, right? Right, absolutely. How'd that happen? So, um, well, as I say, then I had trouble, um, you know, generating any interest one as a in, a in cultural Mormonism, because my experience uh, creating working with ex Mormon support groups, I was. Um, administrator for an, of an ex-Mormon chat board for a couple of years. Uh, I actually um, orchestrated a couple ex-Mormon um, or New Order Mormon uh, pilgrimages, essentially, to Kirtland, where we could have, you know, we could talk about it as a place. This is a place that my ancestors helped build. You know, these were their, this, but this is the actual 
you know, honest history about it. <laughs> this is not just a sanitized history or a history that reflects the one view of any one institution on it. I gave, gave tours that way, uh, but it was the, like even in that case, it was some. You know, often you know there were, we had one. Uh, for example, a um, a guy who uh, had been a, a Mormon bishop in in Michigan who came to one of those, and he at a certain point he couldn't go on anymore because he broke down because it's just too new, you know. And so there was the, the emotions were all too raw, and then at a certain point people were did lose interest if they the, once the emotions were not raw anymore. And so that wasn't I didn't find that to be very effective, and so I moved from there to. Um, spending a lot of time with the the different um, historians institutions so MHA and, and JWHA and fairly early on um, Mike and I became directors of the John Whitmer Historical Association which you mentioned is the um, Community of Christ equivalent of the Mormon History Association and uh, and just found you know wonderful community of the uh, historians in those and just sharing all of that kind of thing uh, and so that's one more step. So like you say, move right. out to uh, back into, okay, so then the next step from there. So um, uh, at a certain point, I then also then started to, though, see how many of the people in that community, how many of the people in like maybe the Sunstone Mormon community in the progressive um, uh, Mormon community, how many of the people and then how many women in the LDS uh, progressive community um, – uh, how marginalized they were within their own religious tradition. So you could have somebody who is um, just this incredibly talented, this intellectual giant who, uh, uh, you know, in the case, let's say, our, my good friend um, Christine Hagland, who is the editor of Dialogue, the pr premier um, uh, journal of Mormon studies. And, and yet, you know, she doesn't have a a um, respected role then inside her own congregational experience, inside a ward. Inside a ward, she's a divorced woman who is in an age range that, you know, how are you even connected to, you know, the, the hierarchical priesthood structure of the local congregation? And so for all of these people who are um, uh, people who I just enjoy i uh, are great friends with my uh, of mine who uh, but they are nevertheless uh, they fall under for example boyd packard's um, list of enemies of the mormon church you know so they so people who are intellectuals people who are uh, women uh, self-realized women feminists people who are uh, gay you know so those so all of those uh, i started to therefore see that uh, that need Simultaneously, as seeing uh, the idea that uh, cultural Mormonism, in a particular, in, in actual secular institutions, didn't seem like it was particularly functional or likely to go anywhere. And so then, I simultaneously, in the whole course of this thing, as being the director of the John Whitmer Historical Association, I came into a lot of contact with um, Community of Christ, the RLDS Church. Uh, I became way more familiar with the um, history of the RLDS Church, the incredible and brave transformation of the RLDS Church over the past 50 years. And um, I started to see uh, the real um, benefits that an alternative and progressive faith community uh, could have for people who are marginalized within the Restoration tradition. So 
that's kind of, as you can see, this path is eventually leading. It is over the course of 20 years, so it did take a little while to go. Yeah, so, yeah. So so to summarize, you, you tried to organize sort of communities around Mormon culture with with marginal or liberal or disaffected Mormons, but found that that was hard to do. Right. You you saw a lot of people that that desired to maintain affiliation with the church, but but specifically within the LDS Church's case, women, sexual minorities, and you know liberal intellectual types. You saw them as sort of being destined to remain affiliated with the church that undervalued, underappreciated, uh, underutilized them from your perspective. And so, and so you, you saw maybe the community of Christ as a, as a place for these people to potentially congregate. Did, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. But did, was there anything spiritual inside of you, uh, was it an intellectual choice for you? Was it a purely social choice for you? Was there any spiritual or theological, um, you know, elements or factors for you? Yes, absolutely. Talk so about that. I would Yeah, I, I absolutely would not um, feel uh, comfortable, or I wouldn't feel that it would be appropriate at all for me to um, advocate something, you know, without. Uh, yeah, without having you know a personal spiritual dimension and a feeling of calling, and so in the course of although my whole background had been uh, history, as of about six years ago, I um, uh, in, a, in kind of seeing this kind of need and also this potential, um, I switched almost entirely all of my um, field of study and focus to uh, looking at the entire history of uh, theology, to looking at uh, the history of philosophy, to looking at philosophy and theology, to looking at uh, scripture study, so that I could actually speak meaningfully, so that I could actually understand um, the, the issues, you know, theological issues. Um, in, the Mormon tradition is, is we, there's always people make the, the, um, the aphorism that Mormons don't have his, theology, they have history. Uh, and I and I think that the, it, it's that still remains true. There is so much to theology that has to that can be looked at, and there's it's such a um, anyway it's 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 a very deep and challenging thing. And that's kind of what I was trying getting at, like you were saying before, in this sort of high focus thing. What what are other ways of looking at God than in the kind of um, the late um, Nauvoo progression style? Uh, uh, literal heavenly father kind of God, uh, what other ways can we look at how people have viewed God throughout time? So uh, I definitely, um, in becoming informed about that for the very first time, uh, I, I also then definitely uh, have felt a sense of calling that this is, in fact, the, um, this is my, uh, what I'm called to devote my life to. So I am really, um, I'm entirely committed to uh, helping people within this, uh, you know, this tradition, my cousins, uh, people who are marginalized within their own faith community, helping them to uh, empower themselves by being able to um, 
be a part of a community that values them, that they have total ownership of, and that uh, that is therefore you know incredibly uh, empowering and meaningful to them. And I and I love this, and I love this about you. Um, but but I'd like to maybe end this segment by talking about your actual beliefs. And I'd start by saying, you are called by what or who? Who or wow. what is calling you? Or what is your, how is your belief structured? Is it in a literal anthropomorphic God? Is it in a sort of deistic God that, that either created, you know, the universe and then just kind of checked out or is just not intricately involved in, in the universe or is it some just type of force or well, do you prefer not even to give any form to, to, or description to the belief and just say, you don't know, but you just feel called and that's all, you know, like, where do well, you stand? Calling for my, so for me, calling is, uh, the, uh, and, and actually revelation, inspiration, scripture, all of these things are human response to the divine. And and by the divine, I do not do not. Yes, I don't believe in an anthropomorphic god or a god that is spirit, a god that is body, a god that is finite in any way. So I do kind of reject those ideas. I don't. Um, uh, I'm going to make a blog post that is something like, uh, "There literally is no Trinity." <laughs> you know, in other words, that I'm not interested in. Uh, uh, in the in a view that is is literal, rather uh, in terms of it, it, literal physical, in terms of a human conception. So I think that anything that we do when we're talking about God as humans and we're ascribing different human anthropomorphic characteristics to the divine, we're attempting to um, uh, you know limit the imponderable or the the infinite. Uh, I think by de- the definition of God that I believe in is that uh, God uh, God would be God is infinity not uh, that God is something finite uh, within infinity and the way that we're able to then you say okay well this is the imponderable how can we how can we even relate what's the point and so the uh, my definition of Christ theologically uh, as opposed to Jesus, the human Jesus, the Jesus of history, who I don't believe was divine. I think that our the historical record that we have, uh, the literary record from we can pull out from studying the New Testament, is that Jesus is uh, a prophet, a wonderful uh, teacher who uh, had an incredible gospel message that is still resonant resonates with us today. But that Jesus was not in 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 some kind of literal way imbued with uh, divinity. Um, but rather, um, uh, what uh, the idea of the Christ of theology? Um, what I would say about that is that uh, Christ is the uh, is a model that we use so that we can understand and connect with God. So if we want to think of God as God the Father, if we want to think of God as your mother, if you want to think of God as Jesus the the brother, the son. Uh, if you want to think of God as the community of the righteous, the kingdom of God, or divine law, or however you want to think about it, um, that is the way we are able to get our hands around it. And I would call that Christ, the model of how, of the bridge that connects us to the imponderable. How do we ponder the imponderable? Uh, but 
we just have to be very aware when we're doing that, that our models aren't literally true. And if we start to decide that we worship an individual model where we say, uh, God is Elohim, he has X number of wives, this kind of thing. If we understand that as to be some kind of literal thing as opposed to uh, a model that we're using to relate to God, uh, then we are worshiping a model, and um, which would, I would call the, the, the danger of uh, having, putting gods before God. So uh, if the two great commandments are love God and love uh, thy neighbor as thyself, the idea of, of thinking about uh, the model and worshiping the model is, is, is where you are having, uh, putting a God before God. It's a form of idolatry to think that you can ca- encapsulate God in, in, in any finite way. Right. And, and that's, this is revealing a bias for me, but that's something that I hear you saying and you tell me if, if this is wrong, you're not coming out of a, of a desire to minimize uh, or marginalize God. You're basically saying God is so powerful or God is so uh, complex or significant or powerful that that any any attempt we make to try and put God in a box as, as humans is ultimately going to fall short. Right. That's our human way. Of, that, that's a thing that we just have to understand. That's the thing that humans are doing. We have to do it because uh, we, we. that's what we can do. We have the capacity to do. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. It's just a matter of it, if we make then, we make that box and we make that be an ironclad checklist and we then say, this checklist is exactly the way it absolutely is, then then we've really made, we, yeah, then, then we're doing what you're saying, what I would call idolatry. So. Okay, so... Um... So where does that leave you with Joseph Smith and, and you know, the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon and, and the Restoration? Well, I, it, I think it leaves me in really good, <laughs> good standing with Joseph Smith <laughs> and the Restoration and the Doctrine and Covenants. I think that um, uh, the result of, uh, of the Restoration and the result of the Doctrine and Covenants of opening up the canon and the canon um, – community of Christ tradition continues to be open. And so the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, there's continually new scripture, including some of the very best, uh, in my opinion, best uh, chapters or sections of scripture in the entire canon are some of the most recent ones that have been added to the community of Christ uh, Doctrine and Covenants. So I think that um, what the idea of opening the canon up to understanding that there, um, there is no difference between uh, us and the time period when people are actually in the scriptures. Uh, so that that idea of restoration, that the heavens aren't closed, that the time period that existed, the time period of the apostles or ancient Israelites, uh, is and all the gifts that were there are available to us today, I think is incredibly powerful and empowering. Uh, and also, I think that the idea that, uh, like Joseph Smith did with the Bible revision that he had, if there are problems with uh, the Bible, uh, if things in the Bible don't uh, uh, don't work for our current sensibilities, our understanding that we have, uh, Joseph Smith went so far as to cross it out and change it. Um, this is kind of completely unthinkable in the, you know the uh, Protestantism of his day, and then modern fundamentalism too, where uh, Scripture is viewed as the sole source of authority, and it's almost a, an imprisoning authority, where every little every little thing in 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 the Bible uh, is this rule book, and the idea of it um, 
that that conception uh, itself, though, doesn't hold up because it doesn't understand even the the basis of the Bible. The Bible isn't simply uh, something that was dictated out from God in whole cloth in the King James English. It is this um, incredibly complex collection of texts that you know two centuries of scholarship have given us incredible insights about where it came from and and uh, the historical context of its different components. And and I love that vision. I think it's beautiful. It, and it's the only it's the only vision that makes sense to me, because there's so much that I morally object to in in many of the modern you know in the LDS canon. There's so many stories or scriptures or verses that that morally I just find ob- objectionable. Uh, and it makes sense that people are going to write according to their own biases and, and opinions and perceptions. Um, and it makes sense that that if there's a God, that God isn't going to like go for whatever fifteen hundred years and not communicate with his children. Like right. all of that m- makes it, it takes all these difficulties that used to be problematic, and then all of a sudden they all make sense. It's like okay, yeah, yeah, this all makes sense, except for you know. And I hear a lot of my listeners who are traditional LDS saying the following that that Joseph Smith claimed a specific experience with the divine with the actual personages not not you know uh you know some type of of less literal type of god he well he he later re-remembered it with personages <laughs> i mean your listeners may well have probably done a podcast before on the um on the various uh iterations the different variants of the first vision story uh which which uh does I think I think we can definitely say refers back to an actual event that was a meaningful event, a vision in Joseph Smith's life. I think that um, Dan Vogel, who's um, an atheist, obviously a good friend and a uh, great researcher, has gone through, and he I think he doesn't argue that that nothing happened, that Joseph Smith just made this thing up later. Uh, but but what we do know is that he that the way memory works. Um, as time went on, as Joseph Smith's thinking changed, as his circumstances changed, he later um, remembered the vision differently than what he remembered it in the earliest instances. And so later, once the progression theology has developed more in his mind, then he remembered different personages. But they didn't remember different personages the first time it was written down. Right, right. And and as a psychologist studying memory a little bit. Uh, it is uh, it is factual that memory is very malleable, right? And and subject yeah, and to the influences. Yeah, I don't say he's lying of, later and that he's making that up. I just think that as yeah. t- you re- you I'm remembered when I just told you my story, just now I remember it in the light of where I am right now, right? And so I would not have told that story precisely that way in 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 1994 because yep. I would have remembered different parts of it quite differently then. Right, right, right. But but then. But then the the claim that 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 Angel Moroni visited him that brought him literal plates, and yes. that the Book of Mormon is the product of, um, you know, of a translation, those claims come before he even formed the church or even before he started speaking publicly about his vision. So that combined with the Book of Abraham sort of uh, mismatch between the what what's what's known as the the source uh you know papyri and and right. what his product was plus you know maybe what some view is the unsavory 
practice of polygamy or of hiding it or polyandry. Yeah. How do you get around what many perceive as, as a history of deception or fraud? Yeah. Uh, do, do you do you view do you view those you know the Book of Mormon translation, Book of Abraham translation, and polyandry polygamy? Do you view those things as as acts of conscious fraud, or do you view them in other ways? I well, okay. There's a couple different possible. There's a couple different ways to look at it. I don't think I would say that I don't think that everything that Joseph Smith did is something that I would justify myself ethically. Right. Now that doesn't. So that doesn't. There's a but there's a difference to that in a question in terms of that and out and 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 commit committing outright fraud in a way where he is having some kind of a um, conspiracy with Oliver Cowdery and saying, oh, we'll sure fool these morons, you know, this kind of thing. So, um, uh, I mean, all of these different issues you've raised. So, uh, in terms of uh, of polygamy, I mentioned that um, one of my, my great-great-great-great-aunt is one of the underage daughters and, and in Nauvoo. Not underage daughters, underage wives of Joseph Smith, 15-year-old wives. Um, the the things that Joseph Smith was doing is experimenting with redefining the family in Nauvoo, you know, when he has a total um, ecclesiastical, total um, executive and judicial and uh, legislative control over that city, social control. Um, the uh, pressure that he then put on these women, these young women, uh, mar- women who were married to other people, uh, I think I think you can very easily um, – the historian of the community of Christ has called that uh, abusive priesthood authority. <laughs> and I think that that case can easily be made. In other words, this is an abuse of people's trust. This is something that uh, Joseph Smith was doing that was wrong, was very wrong. Uh, but And so I would, that's what I, how I would label that. Okay, so that's the polygamy. How about the scriptural stuff? So the um, there there is no doubt that um, the Book of Abraham is not translated from a document written by Abraham's own hand upon papyrus. That isn't open, that's not in question. It is, um, the book of Abraham is, uh, uh, there was a papyrus. The papyrus has nothing to do with Abraham. It's thousands of years too late. Abraham uh, is most likely uh, not an actual historical character in any event. Abraham is most most likely, it, to the extent that Abraham is a, it was an actual person, we probably know very little about uh, Abraham, because all the things that are written about Abraham are written late by people who are writing in Abraham's uh, in Abraham's name. So, in anywhere in Scripture, what Abraham has written, um, uh, and likewise, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is not a uh, translation of an ancient text. The source text, by and large, for the Book of Mormon is. Uh, the, the, that drives its inspiration from is the King James Bible. The Book of Mormon is literally literarily dependent on the King James Bible. So it is scripture. It's scripture in um, the community of Christ tradition, and it's, I consider it to be scripture, but it is 19th century scripture, not, not ancient scripture. And that is, I think, totally in keeping with uh, our understanding of, of the component texts of the Bible as well. Uh, both the very core of the, of the Pentateuch, this five books of Moses, so-called, they're not obviously written by Moses, uh, and also the, the the four Gospels that are canonized. Um, so, for example, 
the book of Deuteronomy uh, in the Bible uh, claims to be written by Moses. It's Moses's last speech. It's written. Um, uh, it's written much later than uh, much of the other component texts of the first portions of the Bible. Uh, it. Is not you know it was not written by Moses and so the book itself could be called if uh, if you were going to call it if you were it's susceptible to the same charge that it's a pious fraud that the Book of Mormon would be and set likewise um, much of the writings of both the Old and New Testaments and in any event they're not historical books and they're not written by who they claim to be by uh, so the, so we are dealing with in religion a much more complicated picture than. Um, uh, in scripture than what we'd like to believe if we're going to have a very um, simple and literalistic idea that all of scripture is history, including the, and that includes Book of Mormon and the Bible. Yeah, and, and, and um, I can totally understand that. And I, I see, I concede uh, just personally that there's, you know, metaphorical, spiritual, symbolic, uh, even um, myth-based value in, you know, all of these scriptural texts. Right. What, 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 so, I, what would be helpful, you know, I think when, when most people engage the Old and New Testament, they don't think of it as some dude sort of made it all up. When they're engaging it, at least in from adolescence through adulthood for most people, they're really thinking there was a Moses and they're really thinking there was an Abraham right. um, and, a, and a Jesus and, and the 12 apostles that these cities actually existed, yes. you know? And so I think most religious people just, that's where they are. Now right. I think there's an enlightened group of liberals who are like, well, it may have not happened exactly. You know, of course, you know, they'll read Spong or whoever, and they'll realize that, or Bart Ehrman, and they realized that the Gospels weren't written by, you know, Jesus's apostles, but instead there were oral traditions handed down. But even then, it's it's text that's tied back to people that probably existed, and you know, stories that may be stretched or influenced, but still grounded in a real geography and a real group of people, and not some prime author that sort of just manufactured it. And it seems like there is a difference, at least maybe there's no difference at all. But but for many, I think there's going to be a difference between like some guy in the 19th century making this thing up, not grounded in any reality, no source text, no traditions handed down where it can be traced to anything real. It's just sort of, many would just view the Book of Mormon as this wholesale work of fiction coming from one man. Whereas you have to look at the New Testament as lots of different people who may have known Jesus directly, who were, who were operating in real cities, writing real epistles in some cases. And it's much more tied to the plausibility of some semblance of, of historicity and reality versus just complete fiction. Now, tell me where I'm wrong here, because I think you've studied this more than I have. Yeah, well, it's based on that's, that impression is based on a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. So Good. The oh, Bible, tell me how. Tell me how. Right. So, so for example, the um, there are whole, I mean, yes, the Bible isn't all just one author. So, that is a difference for the book of uh, Mormon, or you know, uh, as opposed to the Doctrine and Covenants, which in the Community of Christ, there's all kinds of 
prophets that have added to that. But the Book of Mormon is is, is simply one of Joseph Smith's scriptures, as opposed to uh, the Bible, which is a, an entire compilation of all kinds of scriptures. But the Bible includes all kinds of um, uh, books that are not that don't talk about actual historical figures and that are, uh, you know, completely whole cloth. Um, have nothing to do with history. So, for example, uh, the book of Job, the book of Jonah, the um, early most of Genesis, all of the uh, all of the beginning things from Noah to uh, Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve, and all of these characters who are not not in any way is there any um, handing down of actual history that's going back from to an actual person. Uh, when I mentioned that Abraham. And uh, Moses and these these are names that may well have been remembered. It may well be that Moses is some kind of a lawgiver, but all of this stuff is written centuries after they um, uh, the person would have existed. And most likely, we all we're dealing with in in most of those cases, David. We have a, we have a, a recollection of an important name. So David is the founder of the royal house of Judah. But almost all, all these stories with the um, uh, the you know uh, the Goliath and that kind of thing are 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 all brought up. Those are those are much later literary creations. Um, uh, in terms of the more recent things, uh, the 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 Gospels, um, you, like you mentioned, it's not just um, uh, it's not just Spong and Ehrman. The scholarship on this is, goes back two centuries, and it's a problem that um, that. Christian scholars, the people um, who have who have done all of this research, haven't been able to, or haven't been willing to, um, talk about that the actual reality. So, what is what does what are the results? What are the conclusions from all of this really deep um, literary analysis? What can we say about where about these biblical texts? So, the book of the Gospel of John, which is so intensely different from the Synoptic Gospels, which tells the story of a completely different. Jesus than the first three Gospels do, and that doesn't speak in parables, that is constantly wandering around and, and uh, is acting like he's already divine, uh, uh, in a, as opposed to the Gospel, the Jesus that appears in Mark. Um, what do we make? What do we make of the of contradictions in all of this? Well, it's been studied very, very extensively, and uh, but that unfortunately that information hasn't really been transmitted to anybody. In the pews, <laughs> and so and so, what I'm hearing you say is that the traditional view that LDS church members get, which is that, hey, God talks to the prophets; the prophets write it down, right. and we have scripture. That's we're not you're not holding to that view. What so that's a uh, modern view, so right? That is a view that has existed since the Enlightenment, and it is a modern view that is a reaction. Uh, to the Enlightenment. So this literalistic view that people have of the Bible as history has only existed since we have developed history as an actual literalistic discipline. So in other words, people in the Middle Ages did not read um, did not read the Bible that way. Now they did believe that those stories existed, but they viewed every aspect of their lives as being symbolic. So if you were to read a medieval, book on uh, a biology, a bestiary, uh, the, bi the book will talk about uh, lions, but the lion 
uh, is immediately in that book uh, some made you know it, what the everything that the lion does, all the characteristics of the lion are immediately explained symbolically. So the lion uh, represents Jesus in this way, and all the, it, these kind of things. It's not that they didn't think that. Um, that the lions were like that, <laughs> but their entire worldview was entirely symbolic like that. In other words, they thought that the reason why um, lions were that way was to provide symbols for you know these eternal truths. And so it's a completely different way of looking at the world that we don't look at the world like that. You know, and so we have this. So anybody who has this kind of um, modern literalistic view of uh, Abraham, you know, living within these certain dates and doing precisely what is recorded in either the book of Abraham or the book of Genesis, um, has a has a modern view of that that was not would not have been shared by the original authors of either scripture, either Joseph Smith or the underlying authors of the of the book of Genesis. So, so one question that I got as recently as today on the A Thoughtful Faith Forum, because I, I basically made a very similar argument uh, that you made to, to, to people who are, you know, they're basically saying, oh, well, Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, he's told this is the one and only true church and then all the others are an abomination. And, you know, and the Book of Mormon claims to be a real history. And if and I say, well, you know, sometimes prophets get it wrong, or sometimes they have their own interpretations. What the and, and we should feel free to accept or discard the things that feel or seem right to us. The yeah. response was, well, what's the point? Like, well, then that's not really scripture. What that what that is is just a bunch of other people's opinions, biases. What's holy about that? What's divine about that? And why is that compelling enough to warrant our attention if in reality it's not inherently superior to what my friend might write in his journal down the street? And so construct – and I don't mean to deconstruct because I'm all about reconstruction. Construct for us a view of scripture um, that – can be both very flexible and and realistic, but also is enlightening or ennobling and, and worth our attention. So okay, so there's a couple things. So one of the one of the um, I guess one of the points I would make is that uh, the the goal again I think of the Book of Mormon and of the uh, Book of Deuteronomy is not to be not to be deceitful. They're not. Uh, attempting to um, pull the wool over uh, the eyes of people around them, but rather uh, there's a very pious motive and a very a positive end that's envisioned. And so, uh, for the in the case of the ancient prophet that pseudonymously authored the book of Deuteronomy and said that Moses had written it, the goal was to uh, institute a religious reform in, in ancient Judah, uh, and and in fact the the result of that um, act is the um, is scripture-based religion. Period. So, in other words, Judeo-Christianity, Islam, uh, those are descended from that act of uh, of writing uh, Deuteronomy with the intention of uh, you know creating that pious religious reform. Likewise, Joseph Smith is in this era, embedded in this era of the. Um, Protestant uh, Reformation, the Protestant uh, uh, post-Reformation Protestant world of um, North America, and everybody, all he has all around him 
uh, is this incredible sectarianism where uh, the Protestants of the day have determined, they've decided that the only source of authority is Scripture. But because every time you read Scripture, you are interpreting Scripture, they all immediately, they all had their own readings of it. And so everything was uh, immediately, you know, breaks into sectarianism. And so if you go to Palmyra, New York, there's just this wonderful square in the middle of the town around the four corners. There's a, you know, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, a Baptist church, and a, and, um, and the Anglican Church, or whatever it is. So there's four what, four different churches, and they're beautiful old churches that are opposing each other. And and now, obviously, all those sects get along quite well. But before they were um, they were uh, arguing uh, that these were that their different interpretations were essentially uh, life and death, uh, life and afterlife death uh, uh, questions. And hurling anathemas at each other, and so Joseph Smith's, um, and that that extends to his own family. And Joseph Smith's, uh, I think, pious motive response is, we can uh, solve these questions if there is simply new authority, if there is new scripture. And so I, I think that that's a completely justified um, uh, idea, and uh, and his response to. Uh, that uh, I think sets in motion a tradition that is still empowering today. And so what, what I hear you saying is that Scripture is born out of mankind's attempts to understand uh, his or her surroundings uh, spiritually and to advance the conversation towards more enlightened or ennobling sort of values or conclusions yeah and it, and and it's a common document amongst all of us uh you can read it you can find new things in it all the time every single time you read anything uh you're interpreting it uh no no none of the script we can't read scripture we can't read the um the book of you know isaiah the way uh the first portion of it was written by the first first Isaiah writer, because we are in a completely different worldview. We live in a completely different time. That's why all of these issues of historicity, of literalness, of all these things are impacting us all the time, because that's the world that we live in. Uh, so we read it differently every single time we do. But if we are able to simply, um, uh, if we are reading it for um, uh, other you know, uh, you know, looking at how other people have wrestled with these issues throughout time in their own time and context. If we aren't saying that what every single jot and tittle that they have written down is some sort, some sort of um, uh, rule book that we have to be um, uh, imprisoned by. If we, if we have to, every single time we see something in there that's totally objectionable, we have to say, oh well, in in their time it was great to have slaves. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. In other words, all these things that we do to justify the behavior of past people. Uh, be, uh, in, th those those are that's where we're having problems. But instead, if we say people in the past had um, their own limitations, and some places in Scripture where where they have said things that they believed with all their hearts, but we realize or we decide now are objectionable, we need to not you know ex excuse them, but we can condemn that Scripture and that uh, and because Scripture is a source of uh, of inspiration for us that we that we have alive in our, our our lives now we can pull the wonderful things at it out of it and we can also um, feel free I think to, and have to feel free to condemn the awful things at it 
And this is and this is sort of what I said to my friend on on again the Thoughtful Faith Forum. I basically said um, this is one of the great legacies of Joseph Smith, which is something you referred to earlier, which is that God, the, the the you know divine communication is still happening. The heavens are open. Yes. That that um, that the canon is still open, but even more importantly, that individuals can can receive direct personal communication with the divine, um, and that they should, and they that, should. and and that and that. This this notion of continuing revelation sort of implies and almost mandates that we don't look at any any question or decision as closed, but it's sort of a continual refinement or advancing or unfolding of truth, right? Well, and and I would say that again, the, 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 so yeah, there's no so one of the one of the problems we have, you know, I think, even in the restoration, and one of the misconceptions that the restoration the early restoration people had was that um, given the idea that uh, the gospel or God is all the same past, now, and in the future, that every single time something is revealed, you know, this is this thing that is that is totally set in stone. And so then when we later, you know, we roll forward another six years later and we get something that's totally different, this, this, this sets up a contradiction, right? But I think that... Um, what we have to understand instead is that nothing can exist outside of uh, its place in in time and history as far as the human response to it. So the person who is writing can only conceive of everything within their worldview around them. And so um, it's and, – and the idea ourselves that we have of the divine being perfect and static and unchanging in that way I think is actually born out of uh, the kind of the Greek – philosophers like Plato who were seeing, you know, uh, this idea of the perfect table, which is the perfect unchanging table of which all our physical tables are simply shadows of. Instead, I would like to you know, like propose a view of God that isn't like the, uh, the static uh, watchmaker that wound the universe up and went away, but rather God as the dynamic system. So, I prefer as opposed to this perfect stone obelisk that is totally uh, unchanging and static and dead. I prefer to look at scripture and revelation through the metaphor of the river of revelation that is just constantly rolling forward and something, you know, and it's encountering different things as it goes. Right. So, how, real briefly, how would you differentiate scripture from like good literature, like John Steinbeck, you know, East of Eden? It, it, you know, I think that ultimately I, I, anything can be scriptural to you, and so I, I, um, and so I actually, you know, I teach this course. It's kind of a weekend long, twelve hour intensive course for um, people in, you know, it's uh, in community of Christ. We go on a retreat and things like that, and people are doing intense scripture study or study of uh, how scholars view scripture. Um, and one of the things the very first night that we do is just this shaking up, you know, just even the question, what is scripture? So, you know, I, so I re we read things. Is your, is your patriarchal blessing scripture? Well, it could be scripture to you, right? So it may not be commonly held scripture. We, if you read a hymn, we read, that's one of the samples that I give. You know, is a, 
is a hymn scripture. Well, in some ways, it, they talk. It talks about theology. You, I, when I'm trying to get, I, we're playing this. It's kind of a little game, and I and I and I have all kinds of famous scriptures, and people half the time can't identify them. But once we, once if we, when you're reading off the um, the lyrics to the Spirit of God, everyone that's the one that everybody knows, right? So the hymn is part of the the lived church experience. It's talking about theology in some way. In some senses, it's also has it has an idea of scripture to us. So I I do think that um, that any time where we just have a very closed, fixed notion of Scripture, like by and large people have with the um, King James Bible, or say that uh, that that is that that's kind of it's very limiting. And I I, I think we're better off uh, having a much more expansive view of Scripture, and that you can find truth and inspiration all over the place, and and it and part of the thing what, what that one does then is bring it back to um, you know your faith community and and share it share it there yeah and 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 much of what you're saying appears seems to me to be consistent with even modern day LDS teachings in the sense that I've heard it said culturally that that the the hymns are scripture and I, I I've even been taught multiple times that the most recent conference ensign, should be considered scripture and carried around in your scriptures as scripture. You know, we, you know, once a month we study from the conference ensign, uh, because the conference talks are viewed as scripture, which means that the journal discourses at the time would have been considered scripture too. And so, yeah, so it's clear that even within the, what some would say is a rigid LDS context that the, 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 the term scripture can have a very expansive meaning. And so what I hear you saying is that canonized scripture is simply a group of writings that a group sort of officially agrees to honor and study from, but that does not necessarily preclude other things from being considered scripture either as a group or or individually. Yes. So, So back to a question, I don't mean to harp on this, but I do think for you to be persuasive to others, you need to give a little bit more about this one question, which which goes back to Joseph Smith. And that's that, you know, how do we view, for example, the Book of Mormon as scripture if, if we sort of start from the assumption that there were no plates, there was no, there was no, nothing in anywhere close to a Nephi or a Lehi or a Mormon or a Moroni. And that in reality, it's got to be probable that Joseph just said, I'm going to write this book and tell everybody that I saw an angel and tell everybody that, that it's a historical record when in reality there weren't plates and there weren't angels. And, you know, it, it does have a more of a sense of intentional deception or fraud than, than the new Testament or old Testament, which, you know, we're going to tend to more view as, you know, um, less direct or intentional um, attempts at fraud. And so do you, do you view the Book of Mormon in a different way than how I've described and Joseph's involvement in it in a different way? Or do you I, think, I think scripture— it's, I think it's entirely consonant with the, the writers, the prophets who wrote the Bible. Okay, so, so you I think no moral or legitimate— difference between the Book of Mormon and the Bible in terms of its validity or historicity. 
you know, so the Bible isn't any one thing, so we have to go right. case by case by case through it all. But I think that um, uh, the idea of writing scripture uh, and writing with the prophetic voice, like um, anyone, like the original Isaiah did, or writing um, with the prophetic voice and pretending to be Isaiah, uh, writing in Isaiah's name, like the the secondary Isaiah and the third Isaiah, who are writing um, uh, as if they were the original Isaiah, and also still, um, uh, and and therefore that's a deceit if you want to call it that way. And <laughs> uh, so, so I think that that's entirely um, consonant with how the Bible works. The Book of Mormon itself um, justifies uh, this this philosophy, which is that what it, by your works, you'll know it. So if we bring, uh, if we, if, if you are bringing people to Christ, which is the purpose of this book, if you were bringing people to end sectarian conflict over, uh, let's say what are probably meaningless issues about whether or not, uh, you know, exactly how many people are saved in terms of universalism of exactly, uh, what age you need to be able to be baptizing people and when it's not a valid baptism, if you do it a, a day before that, or this kind of thing. So in other words, we can have new answers, answers to all of these sectarian questions that are not in the Bible because no one ever even imagined these questions because there are later developments in Christianity, um, that that is the pious motive that the Book of Mormon uh, is taking, that Joseph Smith is taking in in composing the Book of Mormon. Um, but the then you can say now. Now there's another question: is whether or not I personally would feel justified uh, morally in in doing that, and I wouldn't do that. In other words, it's because I would not write as uh, Tertio Isaiah. I would not write as um, the uh, author of what did you just say? What, what Isaiah? Do- well, Tertio, whatever the third Isaiah. You know, so <laughs> okay. in other words, not not the person who we know is not Isaiah. The person who composed the Book of Daniel centuries after, you know, it's a work of fiction centuries after when it supposedly took place. You know, so they. Um, uh, the person who again made the Gospel of John, which has probably little or no relationship to the historical Jesus, uh, the persons who pen the various uh, some of the some of the various uh, epistles who are not Peter, those kind of things. So, so I wouldn't. So people justify that uh, in writing those things, and prophets have justified writing those things for the positive ends of religious reform. People. Uh, Bringing people to God, bringing people to uh, living right behavior and meaningful life, uh, and that is certainly something that has happened. I would hope that in in our in growth and where we are now, um, where we are, let's say in in recent um, recent sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, that we that we're maybe behaving and we're doing things that I think are less ethically challenged on that so i wouldn't i wouldn't do it but it's what's happened and that's and it's consonant throughout all of um uh religion all the way back to ancient israelite religion to christianity's origins to uh, the restoration and you know is there anything that you needed to do because i think people are going to need help with this they like I don't feel this way like i think joseph smith was probably one of the most amazing humans you know, to be born in the 19th or 20th century yeah. in terms of some of his gifts and abilities. And and even I would even say his heart. But but many people need some way to rehabilitate Joseph in their mind because they simply just say, you know, you know uh, sexually inappropriate, deceptive, 
won't don't uh, therefore I don't want anything to do with any institution that's built upon his foundation. They basically say yeah. Joseph is a cracked foundation. So yeah. how do you have you found a way to interpret Joseph's actions or um, consider his motives in ways that that qualified him for for building upon what he did? Do you do you have a reconstructed sort of favorable view that would that would justify his his actions? Well, in the first place, I would say one you don't you don't have to. Ha- you don't have to rehabilitate Joseph Smith. In other words, in the same exact way, you don't have in, in to, I think, to be uh, validly a part and an heir to the faith community. To, so to be in community of Christ, in, in this case, um, you don't have to have this view that Joseph Smith was a saint and we justify all the things he did. Oh, well, they just really needed to have more more children and polygamy is just the ends to that mean, or however we want to justify all the different things that were done. So, um, I, I don't, so, so in the exact same way that, um, uh, we need to challenge, um, scriptures, ancient scriptures views that we have of, uh, where the, of, that are sexist, that, uh, condone slavery, that condone all sorts of, uh, atrocities, genocide, uh, that don't view, um, People out initially. Initially, they don't view people outside of Israel as actually being, you know, actual people that God cares in any way about. They're simply scourges that uh, God uses to test the faithful. This kind of thing, or to purify the faithful. So these views, um, we should can't. We shouldn't just justify and say, well, that's just how things were at the time, or this and that. And so I think that things that Joseph Smith did that were wrong, that he should be held out again, you know, con- condemned for. Uh, and he did. Um, he made some awful mistakes and did some awful things, and so I don't need to um, to rehabilitate him for everybody. I think if people don't are are never are don't want to forgive Joseph Smith for some of those things, then that's completely within their uh, their rights to do that, and they're justified in that. Um, on the other hand, I would say that okay, so why do you want to? Why? What is the point of having uh, a ch- church that has all this baggage? The baggage from the Old Testament, the baggage wait, from the New Testament. Wait, I want you to answer that, but I wanna I wanna ask you a question in between that. Okay. I guess I guess let's just say that I were to take an extreme example and say, well, you know, Charles Manson thought he was Jesus, you know, and wow. but let's forgive him. You know, he did kill some people and and you know he did do some horrible yeah, things. I, but, I don't think that's I, yeah, yeah. When there's I don't even have to go to Charles Manson because there's been a lot of Mormon leaders in little tiny churches that you know have killed people, right? <laughs> so when you were you know when you're gonna do like Warren Jeffs or something, you didn't, right, 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 kill people. right. But anyway, so exactly. so okay in in. In I guess religion, we need to, there's we need a to lunatic fringe, right? <laughs> and so there, I, so I, I think that when you're talking about severely deranged people, there's a very dip, there's a big difference between you know Charles Manson and any or you know one of the, any any kind of person who's a you know a, a mentally unstable murderer and somebody who is. Uh, there are all kind. It's not. It's not. Um, you know. Anyway, somebody who's a visionary leader who isn't a deranged psychopath murderer, right? Right. So even if Joseph Smith did things where you know he lost control of uh, his perspective, he didn't have any boundaries by the time he got to Nauvoo. So when he first starts, he's way more humble. He isn't every single thing that he when he restores. Um, 
different offices. He doesn't start off as I'm the, you know, the mayor, the general in chief, the um, the head of the courts. I'm the first president of the first presidency. The in, in all the different things, he's just the first elder among all the other elders, and all the elders in the church are apostles. And when and as different things are 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 founded or restored, he isn't always saying, "Well, now that we have bishops, I'm the bishop," and now that we have a, a presiding patriarch or evangelist, I'm the evangelist. Or now that we have uh, a, a we we're having doing Zion's camp and marching, I'm the general of Zion's camp. Well, Lyman White's the general of Zion's camp. When they moved to Nauvoo, Bennett's initially. The mayor of Nauvoo, you know, and this and that and the other thing. In other words, he's not he not initially um, uh, pulling all things to himself like some kind of an egomaniac. But over time, he loses the kind of um, boundaries around him. So he's more and more by the end. I think I mean, this is my interpretation of Joseph Smith, and everyone has their own interpretations. But by the end, I think he's more and more surrounded by people who are yes men, people who do believe. Uh, that it, that everything is justified, and Joseph, it's Joseph Smith says that it's that's what it is, right or wrong. And so, uh, Kevin, no matter how much of a genius and a religious um, innovator and every other thing that he is, uh, it is very hard when you are surrounded by yes men to not you know succumb to this sort of uh, boundaryless um, flattery that is all around you. When and when people you can give orders and people will do that thing. And and so you lose this perspective, especially if you're coming in this case from pretty humble circumstances where he doesn't have a lot of grounding that might have helped him and you know, he would never have imagined um, you know, ending life as the mayor of a large city and this kind of thing from where he started, right? And so he doesn't equipped for it. And by the end I think um, he is in a in a self-destructive um, loop where he is doing more and more outrageous things like with polygamy, uh, with polyandry, with um, consecration, sending people to, you know, stealing things, maybe sending people to vengeance killings or any of the things if, you know, if Puerto Rocco was sent to, to assassinate Boggs or whatever, all of these kinds of things. And then redefining, let's say, uh, eternity and and heaven and God and everything like that, uh, he's, he, he's looking for boundaries, and I think that it almost um, he isn't finding them anywhere, and it almost has to spiral out of control to the point where he gets killed, because he, right. doesn't, he doesn't have anybody stopping him. And so, ultimately, it's the exterior society that stops him, because he just doesn't have any boundaries. He can't find any boundaries inside. Right. And, and that all makes sense to me, and, and and I don't even fault them for it because I think no. with I think with power comes all those trappings. It's just yeah. it's just the way it is. Do you have um, do you have a way to think about the Book of Mormon itself, not as just this objectionable, awful deception, but yeah. as something more ennobled or enlightened? The production of it and the selling of it as a scriptural text from plates with an angel is a way to look at that where it's not so so much of a sort of malevolent kind of endeavor. I don't think it was a malevolent endeavor. I really think that the the um, the motivation is uh, even even at a personal level the sectarianism that is happening even in the Smith family. So Joseph Smith senior and Lucy Smith, uh, you know, how they are in a, in a religious turmoil in the family. I think that the goal of the book is to, um, 
and religious sectarianism to create um, answers where in the only way that contemporary Protestantism, um, uh, you know, accepted authority. So in other words, having due scripture. So I think that the, the motive for the thing is actually a, um, a, a pious motive. I think that the motive of, of actually having scripture that f- explains f- what are we doing in this new world? Where are these Indians coming? Did they come from? None of this stuff exists in the Bible, which is uh, the the sole source that anybody had for understanding the religion at the time. And so the problem with the Bible is the Bible is written by people who had no idea about the existence of the Western Hemisphere. So it doesn't it doesn't figure in. There's no so people who are religious believers in the new world have, aren't can't look to the Bible. Uh, for answers, even though their worldview tells them they should be able to, it doesn't. It doesn't exist in the Bible, and part of the reason for that is that the Bible, contrary to what we have tended to imagine when we're like reading, let's say, prophecies of Isaiah or Daniel or John in, in the Book of Revelations, people imagine always with this incredible um, uh, temporal-centric view that that those prophecies all relate to their own life right now. <laughs> In point of fact, all all prophecies and all scripture um, relate to the immediate audience of the the writer of that scripture. This prophet is speaking to the, uh, his or her contemporaries, and in the exact same way, then the Book of Mormon has the additional value of of speaking way more directly to um, us in our worldview and our needs today than anything in the Bible does, which is thousands more years uh, out of date in terms of what our what our contemporary needs around are. So I'll just make one example. So there is this point in the it's not in the Book of Mormon, but in the um, the inspired version in the Book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, where um, there is a vision that um, uh, Moses is given, and Moses sees this um, Copernican worldview where there's this giant universe and everything, all the space in it, and the Earth is a fleck within it, and and Moses is just a fleck on this little Earth, and he says at the end of that, you know, which thing I had never thought before, or something, and nobody, and it's truly Moses had never thought that before, <laughs> because nobody had ever thought of that before in the Ptolemaic worldview. In other words, this is a Moses um, who was responding to uh, the post-Copernican worldview that we all share, and and the the, the previous Moses that we have from from Genesis, Exodus, and all that also um, is written in exactly the same way where 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 prophets at the time in whatever it is six or seven hundred BC are writing about a figure that would have existed hundreds of years before that who would not have had the the same perspective as the Moses that exists in that writing. So the exercise is exactly the same. Okay, and so and so. <clears throat> Joseph is doing his best to add light and wisdom to humanity, right? Yes. And what do you make of his decision to wrap that in, you know, claims of some type of Native American historical text? Is it just sort of like, do you think that he believed that that, that the truths he had been revealed by some divine source were legitimate and that he just made the decision to wrap that in claims about plates or native American history as a way to both explain history, the the history that we didn't have or to legitimize his teachings in a way that, that, you know, people would be more likely to view them as holy. 
Or do you think that maybe in his mind, he really was channeling uh, ancient history and teachings and that he believed that it was it was actually had a historical basis. Like those are two possible, maybe right. favorable interpretations. Maybe there's others. What do you think about that? I don't think that he believed he was channeling an exact story that would have been the case. So in other words, the let's say the details of Alma the Younger's life or something like that. I don't think that he would have imagined that that actually happened in those ways. He's a storyteller. He's a very creative storyteller. Um, I think that the the overall um, the overall concept of the the narrative arc of the Book of Mormon, the idea that the Indians are uh, connected to the biblical history via um, uh, ancient Israel and also um, the uh, and also the Tower of Babel uh, story, that that is actually a fairly common historical idea at the time. And so I think that he probably viewed that as being the actual history. And people at the time um, who believed that you know, hoped to find the record that uh, Joseph Smith uh, said that he found when he was uh, publishing the Book of Mormon. But in, in so saying it, what he's doing then is, is speaking, uh, you know, with you know, whatever with pious intent, but also not 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 saying something that was accurate. So, in other words, he he did not believe that I, that, um, that he had actual physical plates and the physical plates artifact that he ultimately probably must have felt that he needed to have in order to um, in order to convince the people around him that that artifact itself is is. Uh, that artifact itself is not an you know is not a spiritual thing. <laughs> so it is a, an avatar or whatever, something that was created in order to help convince people around him. So, so a way to put this all together to explain the Book of Mormon would be that Joseph had spiritual truths, maybe even revealed to him by a divine source, that he felt like could really contribute to humanity. He probably maybe wanted to write a book and even hoped that somehow this book might contribute financially to his position because, you know, who, who can't use money. Yeah. And he felt like wrapping it in scripture or claims of plates or historical basis could add to its legitimacy of being, of being received and, and valued. And that, that all kind of, uh, amalgamated any any probably believed that in some to some degree there was at least some historical basis for at least the framework of the book and that in some way all those things uh munged together to motivate his his actions relative to the book of mormon true yes yeah okay all right and thus and thus we have um the the restoration movement gets kicked off <laughs> yes all right. So, um, so th these two hours have been wonderful for me to understand your history and then understand, you know, your views of the restoration and potentially, um, a more enlightened or advanced view of how we can still value and, um, and utilize this great inheritance of culture and of spirituality and of teachings that, that we have. So what I'd like to do now uh, you know, this episode's going to end, but as a preview, we're going to jump on to 
uh, PowerPoint. Uh, you know, John Hamer is this amazing, uh, you know, graphic designer and map maker. And what we're going to do is go through a comprehensive, well, as much as can be comprehensive in an hour or two, a history of the church of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ slash the Community of Christ. A lot of this history is relevant uh, to LDS church members as well, and and it's going to be this wonderful, wonderfully visual but yet insightful treatment of that history that I think everyone is going to find both fascinating and relevant to their lives. That will be the next segment that we tackle. And then we'll finish talking about where the community of Christ is today and the ways in which they're hoping to uh, provide value to, you know, uh, people who aren't able to affiliate in any healthy way with the traditional LDS church. Is that safe to say? Sounds fantastic. I'm excited. All right. So uh, those of you listening, thanks for joining us so far. Please join us on YouTube or the audio will still be available for uh, the subsequent episodes because there's more awesomeness, more John Hamer Community of Christ awesomeness to come. Thank you.